So Colossians chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 1, going to verse 14, which is up on the screen behind me as well. And it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before the word of the truth, uh, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Well, good afternoon. Oh, I'm loud. Hey. Good afternoon and uh, welcome to City Light. My name is Gav, one of the pastors here. Good to have you here today with us as we kick off a brand new series. I have brand new pants on, brand new series, right? I'm all over this. Thank you very much. Thank you for noticing. Anyway, uh, we, we, uh, we at City Light, we often choose books of the Bible and we go through them from start to end. Thanks, Blair. All right, let's move on from my slacks. Um, uh, we, we, uh, we go through books of the Bible from start to end for a few reasons, and uh, we're doing this with Colossians at the moment, we're about to start with Colossians, and basically because uh, we want to understand, we think the Bible's the Word of God, and we want to understand the Bible and the books of the Bible in their context as they're written, to understand them with what the writer's trying to write uh, in his purpose in writing these. And so we go from start to end, and we do that with books in the Bible here at City Light. And it also helps us to address and look at issues that maybe you wouldn't normally look at, or we choose to look at, because they're actually in the book. And so that's what forces us to do that, uh, and that's why we do that here at City Light. But I'm about to uh, kick off the series and kick off the book of Colossians, and so how about I pray to the author of that and ask for help. Let's talk to God together. Lord, we want to thank you so much uh, for your kindness and your grace and um, for loving us, and thanks that you brought us here this afternoon, uh, that you have a message to say to each of us, that you have... Uh, uh, you're the author of this book of Colossians and that you would, uh, you would show us what you want us to know. As Jacob was saying, we want to pray that we would see uh, that you, Jesus, are supreme over all things and that whether we know you, whether we don't, whether we are feeling distant or, or near, that you would uh, refresh us, that you'd excite us about this book, about Jesus and his supremacy over all things. So use me as your servant. Help us to focus and really listen in and, and do the hard work to understand what's going on and uh, we want to pray that, that all we do here, would, uh, we would leave here loving you more. Amen. Now, uh, I'm the sort of person who, uh, I, get, I get bored of things quite quickly. Um, I love what is new, and often get tired of old things. And even when they're new, they become old quickly. And then I sort of tend to, to move on quite fast. Um, I get excited about new things. And once I get a new thing, I'm like all into it, and I love it. 
but then I sort of get tired with it and I sort of move on. I'm like a little school child, really, aren't I? Um, and I, I think I always have this uh, obsessive personality as well. I'm just letting it all hang out here today, aren't I, really? Um, uh, and, and this affects all parts of my life. And I often think it must be hard for Katie to be married to me sometimes. See, uh, Katie and I, we try to uh, do, go out one night, a week, set one night a week aside for us to go and hang out as a married couple, spend quality time together, um, and, and just relate uh, and, uh, as a husband and wife. And but for me to do these nights, I, uh, these date nights, I hate staying at home for a date night. Uh, home is boring, home is the same. So I need to go out and experience something new. And it's often we do, we go out to new restaurants and places like that, and Katie's very accommodating with this. And so we find a new restaurant, we get to the new restaurant, and I, and I would sit down, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Like, I'm really uh, looking around, I'm, you know, buzzing around, and uh, like a giddy schoolboy, um, looking at the food that's coming out, or looking at who's there, rereading the menu, and, and uh, looking at everybody apart from the person I'm supposed to be looking at is my wife. And we order the food... And then she wants to talk, but I'm too excited because the food's coming. Like, I'm just getting ready for what's going to come next. I'm too excited to talk. Food comes, and, we sometimes, and often we get share plates. Now, that's not good for Katie. Um, I'm like four times her size, and uh, share plates don't work for her. I, I often end up destroying the share plate, and she just gets the crumbs that are left over sometimes. And the other problem is, I eat really fast. She doesn't eat fast at all. She's quite slow at eating. And so... Um, and so I just often just stalk Katie's share, just waiting for her uh, to say those precious words to me. I'm full, Gav. Do you want my plate? I'm like, yeah, great, right? Music to my ears. And as I said, I'm a bit of a fast eater, so um, after I'm, I'm done eating, I'm like, we're done, right? Let's just get out of here. But Katie wants to talk and engage in quality time. I'm like, but I'm, I want to move on and uh, get on to the next thing. And uh, I think I must be at points a bit of a nightmare to be married to in this area. But it's my personality, and um, I've got to work hard against that. Um, and, and sitting and waiting and not wanting to move on or not wanting to, to, to chase that next thing um, uh, and not chase what is to come. Uh, and the problem with this is often that uh, this makes me feel like I think I can be often uh, very, very easy to satisfy or uh, not very content with what I actually have. And it becomes a little dangerous and, un- and unhelpful. Uh, often think my thinking is, I often think like the grass is green on the other side. So you're always pursuing the next thing, thinking what I have is okay, but there must be something better out there. So I need to go and chase what is better. And so it's almost like this feeling you never really have enough. Um, and so maybe I should go and search for it. And so I can be content. And if I give in to this, this way of thinking, um, I could actually have the most fulfilling and best thing or experience, but it just wouldn't be enough for me. Um, and I wouldn't enjoy it, or, or I'd get bored with it too quickly. And I'm sure that we can all, all be like this. Um, it's easy to take things for granted when you get used to them, when they become same-same. We can become complacent, stop appreciating and being thankful. We can even become entitled, thinking, I deserve this, or I deserve better, or I want more. And one of the big things, uh, problems with this is that we often don't cherish or appreciate what we have right in front of us, what we're being given. We can fail to see how much we have. We can easily lose perspective um, and, get, and become ungrateful and frustrated by it. And worse than this is that often the tendency then is to, to move on, to chase what is next. To, to let go of what we have, or let go of something or someone that we have, to chase what is next. And that can be dangerous because what we have might be worth of more value than anything else in the world. 
This is the issue that's going to be at really at the center of the book of Colossians. And we're going to look at this for the next five weeks. And we're going to hear in a minute about what this issue exactly is. But, but one of the things going on with the Colossians was they weren't really satisfied with what they had. And so Paul, the writer of this book, is going to speak uh, into this and he's going, to, he's going to hold up the supremacy of Jesus over all things and remind them just how good it is to be known and know the creator of the universe. He's going to hold that up. And Paul is going to write this letter with this urgency, reminding them of what they have in Jesus and how good it is to know him. And really, my, my hope for the next five weeks, as myself and Mark Dunstan and, and Cam preach, is that you would be reminded of Jesus' power and his supremacy over all things. That my hope is, in this series, that it would refresh you. That whether you know Jesus or you don't, or you're walking with him, or you're, you're drifting, whatever it is, that this series would be where you come and you're excited to hear about how amazing Jesus is and how amazing it is to be known by him. That's really my hope in this series. Now, uh, before we look at the passage that, uh, that Jacob read for us, I think it's really important that we understand a bit of the background of this book. So I think you can read the book of Colossians and go, yeah, really cool truths, cool truths. But if you understand why Paul wrote it, the, the issue in Colossae, I think the book is so much deeper, so much richer. So let me try and explain that to, to you for a few minutes. Let me read to you just uh, sentences one and two. They're on the screen behind me. It says this, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, for the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So we pause there. What do we learn? We learn a few things. We, firstly, we learn that the author is Paul, that he's writing this letter and he's an apostle, so it's from God, has God's, God's stamp of approval. And it's written to followers, to Christians, the saints and faithful followers of Jesus in a place called Colossae. Um, so this is a real letter written to real people in real time, so first century. Right? It'd be like if Paul wrote a letter to us, you know, to the faithful saints at city like Balmain, right? Real people, real time, real issues facing uh, real-life struggles. We also know here, uh, as you read the book, that Paul actually does not know this church. He's never been there. He didn't plant it. He never met anyone from the church at all. But he's writing to them. Throughout the book of Acts, it records Paul's journey, missionary's journeys, his three journeys, and records where he went and what he did, and him going and speaking about Jesus and planting new churches. Here's a, here's a map. I'm going to show you this. A map of his travels. Now, that red dot there is Colossae. You can see there. But Paul has three missionary journeys, all starting in the bottom corner from Jerusalem, and he travels around all through Asia Minor um, and preaches Jesus and plants new church, churches. And then at the end, it's seemingly that he dies up in the top corner, up into Rome. It's where he goes. And he's under house arrest, and he eventually dies. And he pens most of his letters from Rome, who writes his letters. And this is where it looked like he wrote this letter of Colossians. But then if he didn't start the church, how did this church begin? Who started the, the, this church in Colossae? Well, if you read Acts 19, 9 and 10, Paul spent two years in a place called Ephesus. Now, if you look at the red dot, just to the left of that is a place called Ephesus. Now, Paul visited there a number of times, and he spent a good amount of time there. He spent two years preaching Jesus in a public space like this. So he would preach to people, and people would come in and hear what he had to say about Jesus. That's what he would do. And uh, in, in sentence 10, you read of, of Acts 19, that all, it says, All the residents of Asia 
heard the word of the Lord. So people would come to, from around Asia, would come to Ephesus to hear this guy Paul speak about Jesus. They come from far and wide. And then Paul had this heart, so people came to know him, he had this heart to train them up and send them back out to where they came from. Now it's most likely during these two years that a man named Epaphras, who you read about a bit in the book of Colossians, Epaphras came to Paul to hear the gospel, hear about the good news of Jesus. And Epaphras was from Colossae, that's where he came from. And it seems like he was then, he came to know Jesus, he was trained by Paul, and Paul said, go back to where you came from. Can I have the map up again for me, Manoj? Go back to where you came from and start a church there and share Jesus with people. And so Epaphras went back there and started this church in Colossae, and this is who it's written to. And you get, the, you get some of this in the book of Colossians. So look at uh, sentences one, uh, chapter 1, sentences 7 and 8. It says this, Paul's saying, Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth... Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Or, chapter 4, 12 to 13 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on, on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear with him, bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea. So it seems like Epaphras from Colossae, and as Paul says there, he's, he is one of you, and he traveled to Ephesus, heard the good news of Jesus uh, through Paul. Paul trained him, sent him back, and now is a faithful pastor of this church. But we read here that, uh, here that uh, Paul uh, is uh, writing this letter, and it seems like Epaphras is with him as he is writing. And it seems like Paul's in Rome under house arrest, and it seems like that Epaphras, who loved Paul, was his friend, came and visited him while he was out under house arrest. And it seems like that he uh, would have shared what's going on in this place in Colossae and then also would have asked Paul for wisdom. It seems like uh, old Paul, who's this, uh, this guru uh, writing books of the Bible. You've got young Epaphras, who's this uh, um, young Jedi trying to learn how to be a pastor, goes to Yoda and wants to know how to be a good pastor, right? And wants to share what's going on, but also he wants to get some wisdom from him. Because there seems to be some issues going on in this young church. Um, what's going on? In this letter, well, it seems to be that these false teachers have come into this new young little church. And Epaphras and Paul knew if this was allowed to go unchecked, it would kill the church. So this letter is Paul writing in response to what Epaphras told him about these false teachers coming into the church. So Paul pens this letter of Colossians to them. What's this false teaching? Well, Paul doesn't really go into it, but we can tell again by what Paul says, we can understand what is actually going on uh, in Colossae at the time. Paul writes in chapter 2 on the screen behind me, sentence 4 and 5, that he does not want this young church to be led astray, he says, by persuasive false arguments, but rather stand firm in Jesus. He says in chapter 2, 8 to 10, he is worried that the church can be taken captive by attractive false philosophy based on human tradition. And he says in response, you already have the fullness of God, stand firm in that. You read in chapter 2, sentence 16 to 19, Paul is urgently warning them about who they listen to, who influences them, what they believe. And he says, I want you to, I'm going to pray, I want you to discern to him what is true and what is false. So this false teacher seemed to be coming in and saying, yeah, cool, you've got Jesus, but let me show you a higher plane of understanding, of knowledge, of spirituality. Yes, yeah, start with Jesus, but add all this other stuff into it as well, and you'll be even greater, you'll even grow more than you have ever dreamed of. And it seems like this false teaching was making inroads 
uh, to this young church. And Paul and Epaphras were worried at the souls of, this, of, of the church at Colossae. And they knew this was at stake. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I'm, I'm pretty horrible at making an argument and defending my stance. Um, I'm horrible at debating. I get easily intimidated by anyone who even looks more intelligent than I am. Um, even when I know I'm right, or I think I'm right, and discuss it with someone who disagrees, I often come on going, yeah, you're right. No, you got me. Yeah, you're right. And, and I walk off, right? So I feel like. And it's been interesting how this often plays out with, with Katie. Katie is very intelligent and articulate and well thought out person. She can make an argument and defend it. Uh, and so for me and her disagreeing, she wins every time. She can easily pick apart my argument and then defend it. But she also has this brilliant memory of remembering things that I've said in the past. My memory, on the other hand, is like a goldfish that I'm like, you know, Dory from Finding Nemo, just keeps swimming, goes in my head. That's what, I, that's what I feel like all the time. And so when Katie and I disagree and discuss something, she'll bring something up or recall things I've said in the past and then quote them back to me verbatim. And I'll hear them and think, yeah, that sounds like me. Like, I'm <laughs> sure. Yeah, you got me again. You're right. Oh, I'm wrong. And, uh, and I, I think that she starts just to use that now against me anyway. Uh, and she wins. Uh, but not being able to make a, a strong argument and, and to stand on what you believe and be persuaded easily is it's a dangerous thing. And this is what's happening here uh, for the Colossian church. Being persuaded, it says, Paul says, by deceptive and fine-sounding arguments. This, this young church started out strong. They started out strong with Epaphras. And now they're being, uh, uh, being tempted to, to, to be led astray, being in danger of being deceived and tricked and taken captive by, Paul says, empty philosophy and deceit. Now, I don't know about you, but I can sort of, I can sort of resonate with this, this young church. See, I don't know about you, but for me, being a follower of Jesus for almost 20 years now, believing, following Jesus, believing that Creator God in intelligent design, believing that God came to earth as a human in Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus' death and physical resurrection, believing the Bible is the Word of God, can sometimes feel silly. It can sometimes feel like you're, you're stupid for believing this. You can seem and feel unintelligent, almost like to be a follower of Jesus, it's like blind faith. You know, leave your brain at the door, then follow Jesus. You can feel like that. And then when you think about, well, then Jesus says to live this way, you can think, well, I've got to follow that. And you can seem like outdated and archaic, it can seem ridiculous. And I'm sure some of the Colossians felt this way. When they looked at the world around, they could feel this. They would have felt out of place. It would look silly and stupid and it's easy to be persuaded away from what you first heard in the gospel when you feel this way. And, and I wonder, for you, as you hear this, as you hear it being persuaded, what, what, what would it take for you to be, be persuaded away from Jesus? To stop following him? Or what is the main blockage to you from following Jesus? Is it an intellectual thing? Not believing or, or doubts? Or is it more, it's not worth it, it's too much to give up? Or is it that life with, with, without Jesus seems better, easier, more fun, more fulfilling, more satisfying? Or maybe it's just that you're drifting, you're coasting through life, you have Jesus on a Sunday maybe, and he's not really a priority, life's busy, I don't have time. What is it for you? And could you name what it is that would drag you away? Paul was writing a letter to you, what would he say to you? What would he name for you? What would he say you're in danger of? 
And what would it take for him to show you that Jesus is worth it, that's worth, that he's worth following? This is the situation that Paul is writing into in Colossae. And he's worried they're drifting, he's worried they're going to be persuaded. So what is Paul's answer? What is his solution? What is he going to press into for this book to remind these Colossians that it's worth it? The big thing he shows in this book is Jesus' supremacy over all things. He really shows the Colossians who Jesus is and what they have in him. He points to Jesus as the king, the ruler, the creator, the image of the visible God, the one who sustains all things, the one who is risen and seated at the right hand of God right now. And he's reconciled the world to himself, you and I. And, Jesus, and Paul clearly proclaims Jesus at the center of everything. Paul says, if you trust in him, you have a relationship with this one, this king, this, this ruler of all things. So Paul's saying, if you have that, you have everything, why would you move on? Why would you be tempted to leave that? And that's what we're going to see in this letter. And I want to say, if you're here at the moment, and you're feeling tired in your walk with Jesus, or if you're checking Jesus out, or if you're walking solidly with the Lord, the book of Colossians is for you. Because whether you're killing it or whether you're feeling flat or whether you're checking Jesus out, the answer is all the same. We need to keep seeing the supremacy of Christ over all things. His power, His rule, and His reign over all things. That's what Paul is going to say, and I'm excited to preach this, to remind you, to refresh you about Christ and Him and His his centrality over all things, His supremacy. And that's what we're going to do for the next five weeks. And I I want you to be excited and look forward as we come uh, to this book each week. But just in the remaining time, I want to walk you through just a few of the first few sentences to show you how Paul starts to do that and unpack that. So have a look at sentences three to eight with me, and I'll read it for you. This is what he says. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for you. So he's praying for them. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus and the love of, that you have for the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard in the word before the, in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. So it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's the faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So we've been saying, Paul knows the situation, he knows what's going on in Colossae, he knows they're in danger of drifting. And I love how he starts the letter, or what he does. He starts by being thankful for them. He doesn't go at them and say, how stupid are you? No, he thanks God for them. He's thankful. Although they're being tempted, he's heard from Epaphras, and he's thankful to God. But you notice what he's thankful for? Sentence 4, have a look. It says uh, that their faith and their love for one another. That's what he's thankful to God for. Their faith and love for one another. And it's all because the hope they have that is stored up for them in heaven. There's this link between hope that leads to faith and love for one another. This hope of what is to come, hope of eternity, knowing how the story ends, shapes how they live now. And this is what we were talking about a bit last week. So hope leads them to be strong in their faith and leads them to loving one another. But how does hope affect love? How does that, how does that motivate us? I don't know if you've heard of, um, uh, of the, the book called The Love Languages by, John, uh, by someone Chapman, I think his name is. Um, 
and yes, there's five love, love, love languages, but my love language is gifts. Convenient, right? Exactly. Uh, I love getting presents. I love getting presents. Um, probably ties into getting new things, I think. Anyway, I can remember when I was a boy, I loved Christmas. I loved Christmas. Uh, I was always so excited when Christmas came around. It started December, trees coming from the shopping centers, Christmas carols coming on. I thought, yes, Christmas has arrived. Uh, uh, for me, Christmas was, was exciting. My parents used to go all out. Uh, my mom would buy so many presents for me and my two siblings, and uh, it would never disappoint. She spent months shopping for each of us. And uh, then on Christmas Day, we'd get all the presents in the morning, wake up, we'd play with all our new things, new toys, and then she'd prepare this massive feast, and then the day would be just like enjoying, enjoying your toys, um, having this massive feast, swimming in, the, in, the, in our pool, and then having a big sleep in the afternoon. This is like the, my dream, right? This is just like, I love it. And it was the same every single year, and each year it never disappointed. And so it was amazing. And so it was something I looked forward to every single year because I knew what it was going to be like, and it never, ever disappointed me. And I'm sure you've had this feeling where you've looked forward to something, an amazing holiday, a break from work, seeing someone you haven't seen for a while, going out somewhere, and you're, you're excited by this. You're excited by the thought of what is to come in the future. And you know it's going to happen, and you just can't wait for it. And you live in that anticipation, living in waiting for this moment, knowing that it's going to be amazing. And as you live in this waiting moment, it shapes how you live. It shapes your mood. It shapes what you think about. See, these Colossian believers, they knew of the certainty of what was to come. The hope they had, the hope they had in Jesus. And this motivated them to love one another. See, they knew and were so sure of their future that they could love one another, serve one another, put others' needs before their own, show unconditional care and love because they didn't need to put themselves and their desires at the center. They didn't look at relationships with others as something they needed to gain from. They were so sure of what was to come, so sure of how amazing it was going to be and what they would receive in the future that it freed them up to love others without expecting anything from those relationships. And they didn't need to put their hope or their meaning or their purpose in how they related to one another or what they got from one another. See, I, I believe that, 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 and, and that believing in what is to come and knowing and being certain what is to come actually makes you enjoy life more here and now. You don't have to hold on to things now or seek them to find your hope in, but rather you can enjoy them for what they are, as gifts. Gifts to be enjoyed, gifts not to be squeezed out, or squeezed onto and, and held on so tightly to find your hope and purpose and significance in, but gifts to be enjoyed. And we can easily be tempted to find our hope and our significance in our friends and our family, our career, our wealth, our status, and our parenting, what others think of you. There are so many things that we can search for our hope in. But all these things are good things, but they're gifts just to be enjoyed. Not find your hope and purpose and meaning in, because at some point, they will let you down. Knowing your hope is laid up for you because of Jesus' death and resurrection allows you then to enjoy your family and friends and career and being a parent without crushing them the expectation of trying to get this more purpose and meaning out of, which they can't. This is something that God has really pinged me on recently. I want to share this with you. Recently... um, I realized that, that anger had started to grip my heart. I realized that when I was, um, I was driving in my car with uh, Katie and the kids in the back, and uh, I, I live in Rosie and it's a nightmare to park. You can never get a park in my street. 
Um, and, uh, and we often get a park at the front of a house, because I've got my trailer there, a little sneaky move, but anyway. Um, uh, this one day, this car had parked in, my, in this spot, and it wasn't my spot, but I'd call it my spot, right? And I'm driving along, and it was there, and I looked at Katie, and I said, I would love to get our car and smash that car. <laughs> and she looks at me and goes, you are just so angry. And I'm like, you're so right. I am. Like, there's this overreaction, right? Like, to a car spot. I feel this rage inside me. And I'm like, oh, wow, what's going on? And, I, and I, God, in his grace and his kindness, I started thinking, and like, what's, why am I so angry and always frustrated and, and irritated and whatever? I think what had happened was my hope, my hope had shifted from God and eternity to three major things in my life, to my family, to my marriage, and to my work here as a pastor. I was looking for these three things to give me hope and satisfaction and make me feel good. And if, I was going, if, I was to, and if, if they were going well, then I was up. And if they were going wrong, I was down and angry and irritated at them for not making me feel better. And what happened was I would overreact then at little things that were nothing. I'll give you an example. Um, my day off normally from work is I have one day off. It's a Saturday and we hang out with the kids and Jet's playing cricket and all that sort of fun stuff. And, uh, but I was, fe- I was realizing on this Saturday that I-, I needed my children to behave on the Saturday. And I needed them to-, to be happy and have fun and appreciate what I was doing for them. And if they didn't, it made me super irritated and angry and annoyed at them. Because they weren't doing and fulfilling my needs that I needed them to do. Because I was finding my hope in them and my hope in my family and, and my kids Look, Jet's eight. He's the oldest. They can't do it. He can't behave more than for an hour, right? Like, they're children. And they can't do this. But I was crushing them with this expectation of trying to find my hope and meaning out of them behaving and making me feel good. Because my hope had shifted suddenly. But realizing and knowing my hope is secure in heaven, and only God can truly satisfy and fulfill me, allowed me then to go, hang on, I can enjoy my kids for being kids. When they misbehave, when they're good, when they're whatever, I can enjoy them and not making them the, the, the goal of my happiness or my hope and significance. See, see I wonder, like that's, that's, that's my journey, my ongoing journey. I wonder if you, if you were to be honest with yourself, where does your hope truly lie? What do you put your hope in? Jesus offers you a hope, he says, that satisfies that is sure, that is secure, that works, that has a future, that gives, that gives meaning and purpose now. The question is asked us really is, do you know this hope? Do you know this hope that he offers you? Paul is thankful to, this, for, to go off this young church, but then he, then he prays for them and he asks them in light of what he knows is going on. He asks that God will mature them and push them on. Let me show you what he says here. Have a good sentences 9 to 14 with me. It says this. Paul says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share and the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has delivered us from the, domain, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. So Paul knows, as I said, 
He knows what's going on in this church. Reported to him. And so he prays that they may grow and mature. But you know what? He, did you see what he, exactly he prays for? He prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of God. They may know God more. He's praying, Father, fill them with wisdom and insight. Grow them and make them more full in their knowledge and understanding of who you are. He's praying that they may know God more deeply, what he is like, what his will is for their lives. And Paul is, is saying here that this, this young church, knowing who God is, will stop them from wandering from, who, from, from him and the gospel. And he's, he's praying, Lord, please uh, help them to, to live a life that pleases you and bearing fruit and doing good works. But it all actually comes back to the character and nature of who God is. A deep and true knowledge of God leads to a transformed life. And that's what Paul is unpacking here. How you're transformed, how do you grow? By seeing and understanding who God is. And knowing that. And as they see who God is, as a mature follower of him, God will strengthen him, them with his power to endure, to stand firm with patience and joy, he says. They will endure with joy. Maturing as a follower of Jesus and growing as, 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 a, his, as, his, as one of his people isn't just, doesn't come naturally. You've got to pursue God and what he is like, understand him. It comes to pursuing him and knowing his grace and his peace and his purposes for you and this world. And this is what you were made for. We were all made to know God. Knowing his, his joy and, and, and his love and his grace. And again, this, this asks us, do, do we know God? You may, you may know about God. You may know about the cross. But do, do you know him? You know, I can know about someone, but do I really know them? Understand them? Have a relationship with them? You know, we've been invited to a real relationship with our Creator through Jesus. And now we get to know Him. It's actually what, what our souls long for, to be reconnected with our Creator. It's what sin cut off, Jesus has healed it. It's what we're made for. Do we, do we know God? Do we spend time getting to know Him? Maybe you're sitting there going, well, I, maybe I know about Him, I know some bits about Him, but it's, it really starts, really simply, we're spending time with Him. If I want to know any, if I want to know Katie better, I've got to pay more attention to my date nights, right? I've got to, I've got to engage and understand her more and, and, and what makes her tick and understand and, and speak to her. Same with God. If you want to know God, which is what you're made for, start by reading the Bible. God says that's how he fully reveals himself, ultimately, in his word. It means meeting with him regularly. I mean, he's looking at Jesus and seeing what he's like. I often say to people, you know what God is like? Look at, well, look, at what, look at how Jesus lives and acts and relates. He's God in the flesh. Go and read a gospel and watch how Jesus relates to the sick and the weak and the poor. That's what God is like. If you don't know what he's like, whether you know him or you don't, read the Bible. Commune with him and ask God to show more of himself to you. I want to encourage you to, to pursue that. To pray and ask God to show you more of himself. Because that's what you're created for. That's where joy is found. That's where purpose and peace is found. By knowing God. Creator of the universe. But I want to finish up with just what Paul says at the very end of, uh, of 12 to 14. He wants to remind these Colossians of what they have in Jesus. He says they have been qualified 
given a share in the inheritance of the saints of light. They've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. They've been redeemed from sin and death and Satan through Jesus' death on the cross. They've been forgiven for their sins and given a relationship with their Creator. Paul's saying, you have everything and more. You have everything beyond your wildest dreams. You have everything. They've been taken from the gutter to the penthouse. They've been given an inheritance that is theirs, that is sure of a hope of what is to come. And all of this is not because they are good people, but rather because they've been qualified by the Father through the Son. They can come to the Father because of Jesus. And when they come to the Father through Jesus, He sees them as perfect and spotless. It's not like when you come to God, He's going to say, Oh no, you've had a bad week. I've seen what you've done. I'm not listening to you right now. You've struggled, you've fell, you've slipped. Go back and clean yourself up. When you're ready, when you've sorted yourself out, come and see me. That's not the gospel. Not at all. Jesus says, come as you are. I love you as you are. I can make you whole. I've cleansed you. Come as you are. Come to me all who are weary and I'll give you rest. It's the promise of Matthew 11. We We don't qualify ourselves before God. Jesus has done it. It's by grace alone that we do that. Paul knows the danger of this young church is in and he reminds of what they've been given. It's theirs. Why would they move anywhere else? The amazing promise of this is that this this promise of of an inheritance, of of redemption is, is ours too. Paul and God are speaking to us just as he was as much to the Colossians. It's ours as well. And this book of Colossians is going to be all about this, all about Jesus and his supremacy and all we have through him. So I want to encourage you to, to really be looking forward to looking at this book together, to start reading it through. Keep reading it through. Understand, highlight things, write it on it. Like, understand what God is saying to you through this book. It's four chapters. It'll take you 15 minutes to read through, to understand this book and, and pray and say, God, I want to see more of you and see what happens. See if he doesn't give you a peace and a joy and a comfort. Whether you know him, whether you don't. But more importantly, my prayer is, if you're a follower of Jesus through this series, I want to pray that you would know him, know what you have, and so you would not be tempted to be persuaded or moved away or become lukewarm. But actually you would grow and be excited about what you have in him, knowing that you have the supreme King Jesus for you, on your side, who has given you everything in Christ. And if you don't know Jesus, my hope is that you come to see him and his supremacy over all things. It's my hope for this series, and I hope you're looking forward to it. I'm going to pray. Father, I want to thank you for this book of Colossians and for uh, these truths that we hear about you and about Jesus and his supremacy over all things. And we want to pray for it to be a refreshing series as we just really focus on, on Christ and what we have in him. I want to pray for those of us who don't know you yet. We want to pray that. We would see you, Jesus, clearly and that you would help us to take away any blockages that are there, that we would engage our minds and think in our hearts. For those of us who are feeling a bit flat and, and drifting, we want to pray that this year is where you would really grab our hearts again, make us alive and, and refreshed and excited to be a follower of you. So Lord, I pray that you'd bless our series in the next four weeks. We would be excited about this book and you would teach us tons about who you are and your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.